Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. This episode is part of a special series about the Bakalu Trail region of Newfoundland and Labrador. Join us as we explore the hidden gems of the Bakalu Trail, from stories of phantom ship sightings to local art and history. I'm your host, Natalie Dignam. Today's episode is an interview with Clifford George, a storyteller, painter, and passionate advocate for the endangered Newfoundland pony. Clifford lives and works in the small town of Whiteway. He's well known for his storytelling, which he shares with listeners from near and far. Clifford is also an accomplished artist. While he's primarily self-taught, Clifford also received a formal art education at the College of Trades and Technology in St. John's. He's painted and studied with well-known Newfoundland artists like Gerald Squires, Frank LaPointe, and Don Wright. Clifford also worked as a medical artist at the Health Sciences Center at Memorial University. In today's episode, Clifford shares a few stories with Heritage NL researcher Katie Crane about Newfoundland fairies, his painting, and growing up with Newfoundland ponies. So what is it about fairy stories that really inspires you? The dark boy. Jesus, oh, you remember the dark and the nights where there's no lights on the poles and everything like that? And you're walking home and somebody say, don't go up that line, that, that lane there, boy, that drunk you say, because you will see the fairies up there and they will leave you astray and all this kind of stuff, you know. That was Clifford George. In case you don't know, Newfoundland fairies are clever, mischievous, and not always kind. Listen to these next stories to get an idea of what I mean. See, fairies don't have real blood, you know that, do you? You don't believe in the fairies. See, the fairies were cast out of heaven. They didn't get into heaven. Some people say that the fairies are like the angels, you know, in a lot of ways. Like uh, Mr. Hayes Brace, the, the fellow I was telling you about, one day he came down, he said, boys, I had a hard time. This is evening time. Going home, he said, I had a hard time getting up that hill there by backside, he said. He said, you know, he said, I had all them sheep in my boxcar. And by Jesus, the fairies decided to jump onto it. And the old horse that was had almost had her tongue out trying to get to the top of the hill. And he said, more fairies used to jump on. They laughed and they said, he's not going to make it. Gonna make it. Your horse is not going to make it. He said, I could hear him saying it. But he said, just as I got to the top of the hill, he said, when you knew the horse was going to make it, they all jumped off, he said, and ran up under the bridge laughing. Yeah, well, I say, if you if you wanted to have fairy stories, then you come here one day and sit down. And I'll tell you a whole bunch of fairy stories, but like the one about the red shoes. I see, I remember it all now. Uh, one time, see, there was a, a two little girls. They were twins, and uh, they lived with their mom and dad and their grandmother. Their grandfather was dead, and every night, every night, the grandmother, the mother would come up and tell, and the little girls would say, the two little twins would say, "Mommy, tell me, tell me a story." So she'd tell them a story and everything every night before they went to sleep. And then she'd lean in over the, the, old, the old dresser, the high boy, and she'd blow out the old lamp. You see, there was no liquid light, so she had to blow out the lamp. So she did that all the time. But this day, when she came to see her two daughters at night, she gave them a pair of red shoes each. And they glistened, you know. They let little silver things all over them. They glistened. They were bright red. So the two little girls loved their shoes, and the mother told them, now, you wear them shoes when you go. Don't be afraid to wear your shoes. But the fact is, you see, about two, three weeks later, the mother went for a walk in the woods, and, and she never did return. So they, they were worried about their mother, and everybody was searching for her. And after about three weeks, they gave up looking for her, and they said, uh, she must have got lost and died in the woods, you know. So everybody gave up. But the little girls were heartbroken. They only had their grandmother and their father to look after them. 
So the grandmother said, you're not wearing them red shoes anymore, the two of you. You're going to put them there in the hallway and that rug, look, and keep them there so you can look at them and keep them nice and clean. So the two little girls would obey their grandmother and grandfather, so they taught. But the fact is, you see, like the, the, the little while later, about a year later, the grandmother was looking at the shoes and the taps were worn down. And she said to her, she sang out to her father. She said, look, she said, you know something? She said, somebody's wearing the, the twin shoes, she said, because the taps are worn down. Now the father said, I wonder who's doing that. So he questioned the girls. He said, are you wearing your shoes anywhere? No, daddy, we wouldn't wear them shoes. No, we were not wearing the taps on the shoes. But the fact is, that made the father and the grandmother suspicious. So they went looking around the house. And at the back of the house, they found a trap door in a closet, you know, where, where, where you could lift up and get outside. So what they did, they, they stayed around there that, that next night and uh, and they waited. The two little girls went to bed. But when they got up, saying they started to sneak out and they took their red shoes. Now, the father, the father and the grandmother saw, they saw them going out through the trap door. So they said, we're going to follow them and see, and see what's going on with the red shoes. But the little girls walked way in the woods. And the father and the grandmother trailed them in the woods, way in the woods where they found a big platform, made a platform, made at a, at a big piece of wood, right? Right up on this rise in the country, way in, way, in, way in the country. So when the little girls got to that, the fairies came out. And they were all so happy to see the little girls. So they told them to put on the red shoes. So they put on the red shoes. And they started playing the little, little birch whistles, you see, little tunes, fairy tunes. And they all started dancing around in a circle. Well, they danced and they danced, and pretty soon out came this tall lady with a silver dress on, sparkling, sparkling like you wouldn't believe in the moonlight. And this was their mother, you see. And they knew their mother was in there because the fairies told them one day on the way to school where their mother was. So what they do, every two or three nights, they take the slippers, and they go way in the country, way in the forest, and they dance with their mother with those red shoes on. So they dance and they dance and they dance, but uh, now the grandmother and grandfather was watching, see, peeping out through a hole in the woods somewhere. Trying to bone. So a little girl saw him there. And he said, Well, we're finished. We're, 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 we're a cot now. So grandmother sees us and grandpa and father sees us. So they're going to ask us some questions about this. Well, anyway, as the story goes, they, they, they went and they put their red slippers back in the bag and they, they went to walk home. But before they went to walk home and they thought that their father and mother, their father, their father and their grandmother knew everything, the fairies put a spell on them, you see? So they wouldn't remember anything. So the little girls went home and went back to bed and everybody woke up in the morning and nobody knew, knew the difference, you see, because they, they forgot about it. They never did ask again why the shoes were worn down. But this went on for years. The little girls kept on going until they outgrew the shoes. But there's a special day every year. They still go away in the country, way in the, deep in the forest to visit their mother who still lives with the fairies because she won't grow old with the fairies. She'll always be the same. Even though they grew, they'll always be the same. So anyway, every year around a certain time, they go into this special day, they go in the woods and they visit their mother and they come out. And do you know what that day is? Mother's Day. <laughs> and, and there's another one that, that, that uh, my Uncle Fred told me, you know, he's scared to live in dead. I suppose people said things to scare you too, you know, whether it was true, we don't know. We got to ask them what they're dead, see? So you can't ask them. But uh, I used to go trouting in the ponds and the gullies and he used to say to me, Clifford, when you get into Pitcher's Pond, be careful because he said you will see a man there, a tall man dressed in red, and and he and even the bushes next to his feet and his legs are turned a scarlet color when he walks along. And he said, 
there's a place over there, he said, and I'm going around pictures, but when you get to it, you'll come to a big flat rock, and that's where that's where he boil up. He said, it's the devil, it is. And he said, that's where the devil boil up. And he said, you go in there and look when you get over there, but don't cross the black rock because if you did a flat rock, because if you do, you will have a spell put on you for life. So in, in goes the young boys, and they walked over to the rock. And lo and behold, and it's still in there. I saw, I saw the rock myself. The rock is still in there, but a golf course in Pitcher's Pond. It's a flat rock, and you can see where the devil stood up with one good foot, ordinary foot, and his club foot, and he pierced his eyes right through the rock. You can see it in there. Still there today. And the fairies takes many forms. You can take the forms of rabbits, the lynx, even a little stray cat or a stray dog can be a fairy, so you better watch out. Clifford also shares stories about his own life, including his work as an artist. Clifford does plein air painting all over the island. And if you ever buy a painting from Clifford, you'll also get a story or poem about the people and places of Newfoundland written right on the back of the canvas. When I was a boy, when I was crawling around on the floor, mom said, Clifford would draw on a horse. And, and, and the minister was there going to church. He used to come to our house for breakfast. And he said, when you go to church? I said, why don't you go home? And so I would draw. So I've been at that ever since I was a little boy. See, I was isolated, so that made me made me made me an artist. I didn't know there was any more artists in the world. I didn't know if I was cutting hay for the horses. I'd look at the pond and see the reflections of the autumn colors and everything. I knew I wanted to be an artist. Well, it's like this, you see. I, I got to have something that speaks back to me. Look, if I'm out, like uh, Ken Harvey was doing a movie on me last year, doing a section of the movie, and I'm over in Freshwater, look right out over Freshwater where all the animal colors are amongst all the houses. But a road going up between it all. Now I got inspired and did that one. I did that in a day over there, great big canvas. And uh, I got, if I'm outdoors, I'm driving along. I just can't paint anything. I got I got to come to something that's going to inspire me. Something that's going to talk back to me, right? Then I just get out the canvas, mixes up a bit of red ochre and a bit of yellow ochre, something like that. A rough and everything in, in light colors. And then I takes me to a big freaking palette buddy. I tell you, you can hear him clicking all over the harbor nearly, laying on the paint. I loved to put the palette noise laying on the paint. And I was up in Dillo last year. I had some time painting up in Dillo, buddy. What a bit of fun I had up there. Because you know what that was like? With, I was up there when this guy, when Kimmel got on the goal, right? Mm-hmm. And I was there before him. And the next thing I saw, people putting signs up and chainsaws going, what's going on this morning? Everybody on their patios and out there painting away. Oh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel sent so much money to put a sign up. Very good. Ooh, like the Hollywood sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go somewhere else and paint another one, and somebody. Next thing, the whole town is black with people. Mm-hmm. Before I, and I write poetry about the paintings too. I just don't, don't, don't just sell the painting. I make up a poem to go with it, or a story to go with it. But the people that live there, or all that. Anyway, I met two ladies up there last year, from British Columbia, and they loved my work, but they didn't buy anything. Two months ago, I got a call in British Columbia. From this lady, uh, Clifford George, yeah. Uh, remember last year we met you up, I vaguely remember, hey, vaguely remember. When they started talking, I remember them because they were different. See, they wanted to have a chat about the paintings and how smart Newfoundland was and how beautiful it was and the color and everything. So she said, we want to buy a painting now, me and my sister, one of your paintings. So send us some images. So surely my wife, she got everything ready. And we send off the images. So they picked the one of salvage I did. Now that's some spot down there too, but that's Newfoundland at its best salvage. Mm. 
that is something else to inspire anyone. The color and salvation, the, the way the water is up against the cliffs and all that stuff. So anyway, I had one there salvage with a boat tied up to the wharf, say big one. A tw- 32 or well, 60, I think, something like that. So she said, that's the one we want. That's the one we want, that one there. Can you ship that to us? So Shirley made a deal and they, t- they transferred the money. So she said, hurry up and get it to us because we're in a hurry. I, w- I got to put it over in our place. She, I didn't, and I didn't hear back. I sent the painting and, and I said, yes, yeah, so get the painting. And then just one of the sisters phoned me. She said, you know, my sister was the one to phone you looking for the painting. And she said, you know, my sister had cancer last year when she was in Dillo. And she fought it ever since for years. But this week, she's given up to it and gone in the hospital. And I got to get that painting to show her before she dies. And she wants me to have your painting to hang over the mantelpiece or the fireplace so that we can rem- I can remember you and I can remember my sister after she dies. And to get the painting the day before she died. In this next clip, Clifford talks about a tourist he met who wanted to buy one of his paintings. And they had they see things when they come from outside the province. They want to know about Newfoundland. If you come to my place, I, 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 t- I that's all I talk about is Newfoundland. I, I'm like an ambassador to myself for Newfoundland. But anyway, he he, he listened to the stories by about the painting. I had to sign the bag, but put the story on the bag while I told him. I'm going to ask you a question now, he said. This is an important question like you just asked me. What will happen to the storytellers of Newfoundland in 50 years from now? He said there'd be none around like you. Well, that's something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Jesus really died on the spot when he said that, when I realized it. And, you know, the stories they're not going to tell are not the stories we're telling unless they collect our stories. Like even if I, buy a, I bought a rooster one time up in Topsoft. Uh, to save his life, the old man, uh, Alan, was going to chop his head off right there. I said, what are you going to do with that rooster, buddy? I was there painting. He said, I'm going to chop his head off and have my dinner. I said, no more Jesus, boy. He's too beautiful to chop the head off. How much you want for him? Six bucks? Yes, boy. I took, I took him, brought him home here and made a pet out of him. You know? Stuff like that. And I wrote a whole story about that rooster, how he died and how long he lived there and everything. I got it all here in the book. So Newfoundland is a special little place. Cause, see, look. You don't have to look for a story in Newfoundland. You wait and it'll happen right in front of you. Like storytellers like Clifford, the Newfoundland Pony is also in danger of disappearing from the island of Newfoundland. Yeah, well, see, the Newfoundland Pony grew as a breed just as Newfoundlanders grew into a distinct people. They supported and established each other's. Clifford grew up drawing and caring for Newfoundland ponies, a unique breed of pony that numbered in the thousands. They were a common sight in communities across the island in the early to mid-1900s. The Newfoundland pony was part of the Newfoundland way of life. They helped settlers clear the land, gather firewood, and were used for transportation. In the 1970s, there were fewer than 100 Newfoundland ponies left. They were replaced by cards and other machinery for work and travel. The ponies were also sold for animal and human consumption, often unbeknownst to the owners. Clifford worked to protect the Newfoundland pony, which originated from a variety of breeds on the British Isles and evolved into a unique breed in Newfoundland. Today, the Newfoundland pony is recognized as a critically endangered species. There are only about 400 registered Newfoundland ponies left, mostly in Newfoundland, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. 
See, the ponies all came from the from the Moreland family of horses. They were the Exmoor, Dartmoor, New Forest, Connemara, Highland Pony. They came from Scotland, Ireland, and England, all in places over there. And they came here with early settlers, and they grew like we did, as a distinct, a distinct, you know. And and they're still around, and they they established this, those communities. They built the communities. They haul. I can remember when people used to haul out all their logs and saw their own logs to build their own houses. And and in three, there was three to four thousand in nineteen eighty eight, but nineteen ninety seven there was only five hundred, and then it went down to uh, to no nineteen ninety two there was five hundred, nineteen ninety seven. It went down to the only documented about 70, 60 to 70 ponies left on the island. So we, we, we started out there in the south and my friend, and we started out to save the ponies by writing books on them and everything. And then we started going around collecting ponies, you see. From the, from, see, look, if a horse is starved to date and you're going to charge someone for, uh, you know, for cruelty, it's better to buy the horse because you haven't got to go to court. So that's what we did. We bought all the horses. You know, we got donors. Like Dyer Roberts, the old Robinson Blackmore, his wife. My God, she had a little, little joke. And I used to go in and say, Ms. Roberts, I got to go to Marystown. There's two ponies down there going around the meat truck. And she'd give me the money, the, the, the meat price, eh? Which was $50 a pound if the horse was 250 Well, she'd give me the money for that horse, and I'd go down and buy it, and we'd put it on the sanctuary, or we'd get a home for it, and then we'd get foster care to look after. So that's what we did. We did that for years and years and years. Save ponies like that. And I'm here now looking at pictures of ponies. I, I, I did all the statistics and everything. And and everyone I look at there is expired. They're all gone. They're all dead. That generation of ponies that we saved years ago to save the Newfoundland pony, they're, they're nearly all gone now. Eh? But the Newfoundland pony still goes on. But it's not big numbers. There's no big numbers in them. But they're, they're, they, they go, they, they're, they're strong little ponies. See, they have a, like the pony's tail grew down over its rump. Deep down. If you ever look at a Newfoundland pony, look at the pony's tail, say a far down. It grew there to protect the lower extremities of the ponies against the, the, the northeast winds and everything in Newfoundland. See? The ponies of England came over here, but they got their own distinct characteristics here by living here all those years for 450, years, right? And they became like, they got this, uh, I call it a sharp distance from their knee to their ankle instead of shins, their shin bones. From these, the short. They got a lot long. They got a lot the narrow back, which means them and the leg and the short legs gives them leg power above the knee. They're strong, boy. They they look at drive stars and they'll work all day for you. In the old days, you know, everybody had a horse. I had a stallion. I always had a stallion when I was a young boy. I could tell you some stories about that. The mounties used to come to me. They were allowed to run free, see. But the Maoris used to come and say, I had to bear it in. And the grandfather said, no, boy, don't bear your pony in, he said. Don't bear your pony and don't listen to him. So I, I said, my pony got just as much right to roam as any other pony. And uh, it was a bit frisky in the, in the spring of the year, so boy, when, the, when it was hot and everything, after the mares and everything. So they had this old mare up, boy. Well, I can remember when they bought it for hauling out the wood. And it was nearly dead when they bought it. It was old, you know. So I went up and clipped it and got rid of all the loose on it and everything like that. But he hauled out all the wood. But when they let it out in the spring, I was worried to death. I was only young. Worried to death that my, my stallion was going to kill that mare because he was trying to mount her all the time in the hot sun because the, the other mares wouldn't in heat. But this old mare couldn't protect herself, see? So this day I had to go down under the church to help dig up the church for a furnace, put a furnace in. 
And while I was down there, they came down. They said, Clifford, you got a, you got another job now when you leave this. Your stallion just killed Sam Harnham's mare up there in the up there in the drum, up there in Wildway. So we had to go and get a one-armed cart, load the whole mare, huh? Take it out of the launch and dig a hole and bury it. So I still didn't get the horse done. Because, you know, in his own right, he thought he was doing all right, standing it. Then he pushed someone else's mare out in the book, and I still didn't get done. Getting castrated. So one day, I was up at the house, and father said, boy, you, grandfather said, you got it in there to deal with. I said, well, he's a Marian bishop. Boy, Jesus, nobody wanted to deal with Marian bishop. But she was tough, right? If she tell you you had to get your stallion done, you, you, you had to stop thinking about it, like tell you. So she was there, and they had their supper, and their grandfather said, Marian wants to have a chat with you. She said, Clifford, she said, you're going to have to get your stallion castrated. I said, why? She said, because I hung around all my clothes Monday morning. See, was it time to wash your clothes? And she hung all the sheets and all her clothes on the line. And my stallion came down the lane chasing the mare. See? And he got tangled up in the clothes line. He carried it halfway up around the shore and dragged the clothes up along the shore. So I said to grandfather, they just want me to get done because I'm in shit now. You don't want to tackle a woman like that. So I went and I called her. Uh, the, there was no vet seen. It was a it was a it was a, a vet in his own way, and he came down and he castrated Miss Stallion, and for, I asked him what he wanted for the for the payment, and he said, uh, "I want such a a yaffle of fish." Now you look that up and see what a yaffle of fish is. That'll surprise you. So for doing Miss Stallion, he probably got a, half enough fish for the winter, and that's the way we worked back then. Everybody we lived and supported each other. See, so that's the story of Miss Stallion. But uh, boy, Jesus, they're smart though. Like, like uh, say now, like uh, somebody will come here and say, I'd like to go for a ride on Annie. That's my new blind pony, right? Or Brandy. And I'll say, you got any experience? They said, no. Well, I said, sure, sure, sure. as soon as you get on that horse, she's going to throw you off or, 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 or go around the circle. She's not going to win anywhere. Well, anyone that comes here that got experience, the horse knows as soon as he gets on the back. Anyone that don't have experience, but they're in for a hard time. Like, I had I had Skipper of Avalon, which was the main stallion. That we saved one of the main stallions we saved the Newfoundland ponies with. And I got to say, like one day I was going to visit Mother. Mother was a lawyer, Dean, up another end of the way. And there's a woman across the street, a married lady over there. She said, I'm going with you now. I want to ride on in the cart. I said, All right, boy, get in. I had a little buggy. I still got it out, beautiful buggy. She got in. She said, I'm going to take the reins. I said, What for? She said, So I'm going to drive the pony instead of you. I said, no, you can't. She said, well, is it because Skipper knows he, he'll know your hands? He knows me the feel of my hands on the reins. If you touch the reins, he'll know you got no experience. And we're fine. So she grabbed the reins, buddy. She said, I'm taking the horse. The horse took off, buddy. He bit the bit. He took off on the velocity. I had to grab the reins from her, slowing in. Very intelligent animals. Well, it's like this, boy. It's the equestrian world now. they got to save the pony. Newfoundlanders can't. Oh, look. I, I lost a friend this week, Jim Jackson, here in Woodway. He loved ponies, you see. And his favorite story is when he was 15 years old, he went to work on the local road with the people, with the horses and the boxcars. And he said his favorite story is Uncle Joshua and his Uncle Simeon and all of them used to have a horse. And his job was Nipper. Nipper is a man who brings all the water for the horses and brings the water for the cook, for the boil the kettle, for, for, the, for, for people. And uh, when they taste their lunch break, he had to boil all their kettles. And he said that was... A, that was the best job he had in his lifetime. Just imagine. But for future generations in Newfoundland to try to save Newfoundland Point.
You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for Hidden Gems of the Bakulu Trail, a special series on the Living Heritage Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Dignam. <laughs>